Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And as usual, we have an exciting guest for you today on a topic that's been requested many times. Right, Wade? That's right. Our listeners really wanted us to cover OCGA 244404B. We're going to call it Rule 404404B the rest of the day. That's in the evidence code, right? Yeah, that's the 24 part. You may remember that Garen Mueller is normally our evidence essentials guy but yeah. he's not going to be upset because we told him we went to get the man the 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 oracle the guy with the tablets he's going to be the one speaking on 404b absolutely our special guest today is the one and only judge robert mcburney from the superior court of the atlanta judicial circuit he is uh an expert on a whole lot of topics, but one of the things he's particularly good on is 404B. So, uh, Judge McBurney, welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you, Tane. Thank you, Wade. Happy to be here. And it's not true that I named my first kid extrinsic evidence. <laughs> <laughs> so, no? Judge McBurney, we, I, we're going to get knee deep in 404B, probably to a point to drive some people crazy. But before we do, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about you and your path to the Superior Court bench in Atlanta. Sure. So I started my legal practice as a prosecutor here in Fulton County, working for Sadly, the soon-to-be former DA, Paul Howard, um, was there for a couple years, and then I moved three blocks down the street to the U.S. Attorney's Office and spent 10 years as a federal prosecutor. So I was baptized in 404 and 403 and 801. Um, when I took the bench, which was in 2012, I was thrilled to learn that in only a year, all that I had been learning about evidence would, would be valuable again. And the fact that I didn't know what rest gesti meant would, was going to be not an issue. So uh, I have a background in federal evidence rules. It made the transition to the new evidence code for me maybe a little easier than folks who had spent 30 years um, trying to navigate similar transactions and all its ins and outs. And I've been on the Fulton bench now for nine years. Now, where did you go to law school? Harvard. Tane, did you go to Harvard? I've been to Harvard. You went to the Harvard of the South. Yeah, I did go to the Harvard of the South twice. Uh, University of Georgia. Go dogs. Um, Please don't say double dog. <laughs> I'm a double dog. Oh, um, but So, Tane, I attended Georgia State University College of Law, and I had the huge honor of actually learning evidence from Professor Paul Millich, the man, one of the reporter from the uh, committee that, that made those new evidence rules that Judge McBurney was talking about. When we got to the topic of 404B, he liked to talk a great deal about the prohibited propensity use of character evidence. And I'll be honest with you, it took me a minute to follow that. Although you did not learn evidence from Professor Paul Millich, and you you had whoever you had at wherever you went to school. Carlson. Explain the propensity use of character evidence and why it is prohibited so that Judge McBurney can get down in the weeds of this. 
Sure. Uh, the idea is that a jury should determine whether a defendant is guilty or not guilty of a crime based on the evidence relating to the offense on trial. If a party, usually the prosecutor, is allowed to present evidence that the defendant previously committed another crime, then there's a huge danger that the jury will, will conclude that the defendant is the type of person who commits crimes. So he probably committed the crime charged in this case, regardless of the evidence of his or her actual involvement in this crime. And that's right. That's, that's the danger. And if the defendant usually commit, commits crimes, it is said he has the propensity, hence Millich's propensity use, he, he, that defendant has the propensity to commit crimes in general, so he probably committed this crime. So, Judge McBurney, um, 404B, I know that occasionally it pops up for defendants and other people, but it is really something that typically involves the the, defend, the prosecutor attempting to introduce evidence, um, I guess, against the defendant. Don't you agree? I think that's right. And that's why the character aspect or the propensity aspect is what we need to guard against it. I would say 99 times out of 100, it is the state that is trying to share with the jury something bad that the defendant did. And it doesn't have to be historical. This is important. Every once in a while, um, a defense attorney will get hung up on the fact that this other bad act that the state's trying to get in happened a year after the facts that are being presented to the jury. And that's okay. It is another bad act from another time that the state's trying to get in. And we'll talk a little bit later as to why they're trying to get in, which is the key. They need to have a reason other than the defendant's propensity to commit a crime. Because then the only reason you're getting in is to say, bad guy, so of course he did this. That's exactly right. And if they can't come up with one of those excuses they're not a prosecutor worth their salt right robert <laughs> it's a pretty long list you ought to be able to find a little cubby hole in which you can park it and if you can't then it probably shouldn't come in you get out that shoehorn and you just yeah just just jam it right in there anyway go ahead but now i will tell you both that recently and i have a prosecutor i love to death and and she's making her chops as she as a prosecutor but she gave me a proposed order that said that I find the 404B evidence admit is admissible because it tends to show course of conduct and bent of mind. I, I said, you need to send me another copy of that because I can't sign that. Now, there are some phrases, and, it, and we laugh about it because we talk about this junk all the time, which tells you a lot of how nerdy we, the three of us, are. But we actually, we know that you can't introduce evidence of other acts or bad acts or prior bad acts or subsequent bad acts because it tends to show course of conduct or bent of mind. Frankly, the old law was what we all called similar transactions. It was broken. And the reason, one of the things that evidence that it was broken is that it was okay to get evidence in to show bent of mind. Bent of mind and, and course of conduct is really just a fancy way of showing saying the word propensity. Exactly right. And I'll, I'll tell you the way you can contrast it is we have, and we won't spend much time on these, but we have two ancillary rules in, in the 400s, 413 and 414, involving sex crimes, exploitation and, and sexual assault, et cetera, where in fact propensity is okay. In fact, the prosecutor or whoever's admitting it can say, you should find the guy guilty this time because he did it last time. It is his bent of mind. It is his course of conduct. 
And those stand in very marked distinction from 404B, which separates out the bad character. And there has to be some reason other than that's how this guy thinks or that's how he acts that gets it in. So it is a narrowing of the old similar transactions, but I'd call it more a clarifying because as, as things begin to fall apart towards the end, as you were saying, Wade, where someone could simply say, well, that's bent of mind. Mm-hmm. That is saying, well, that's what this guy does. <laughs> that's not what we get in. So what are some of the specific purposes for which 404B evidence can be admitted? So it's a, it's a pretty healthy list. I will tell you as, as we march through it, some of them overlap a little bit. And some of them get into an area that I think we'll touch on a little bit later, which is the difference between extrinsic evidence and intrinsic evidence. When we're talking about plan and things like that, that's often something that's really related enough to what the case in chief is that it ought to come in anyway as intrinsic evidence. But that's for a little bit later. Um, One of the, the main bases for getting it in is intent, and we can take these in any order you want, but I I think the one that prosecutors really love to thump on is intent. It shows why he did what he did. Um, And and that's one where we've seen a lot of writing from our appellate courts because um, as they were first feeling their way around 404B and what does it mean and how do we import 11th Circuit case law, there were a couple of opinions. I think it started with Bradshaw where it could be read as saying, if a defendant enters a plea of not guilty, he puts his intent at issue. And then boy, talk about a loophole. All the prosecutor had to say was, well, gosh, you know, he put his intent at issue. So we're trying to admit this to show his intent. (laughs) And fortunately, the um, appellate courts have put some structure around that and and said, but we didn't quite mean it that way. I think they Um, said that, that it might have been misread to mean. Correct. Blackwell wrote Olds, and Olds was sort of a cleaning up of Bradshaw, um, and and uh, they wanted us not to read it literally, but maybe there was sort of a spiritual sense in Bradshaw <laughs> that we were supposed to follow. Uh, but so, it has become clearer since then that yeah, it has. a defendant can clearly make intent not an issue um, by um, saying, my defense is going to be I wasn't there. And if that's the defense they commit to, then it would be improper for a trial judge to say, well, I'll let you um, get in this prior bad act prosecutor because it shows his intent. Because the defendant isn't going to say it was a mistake. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't know. His defense is going to be, I was in Texas. So, Tane, going back to your question, 404B has a non-exclusive list. It starts with one of those, including but not limited to the following list. One of my favorite phrases in the law, I might add. It is because it gives you some, there's, there might be something they haven't thought of. But basically right. the list is this, motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, plan, knowledge, identity, and absence of mistake or accident. And just like Judge McBurney was saying, the absence of mistake or accident. Well, if they're not claiming mistake or accident, then that's a that's an irrelevant reason to let it in. You can't let it in when when if there's a if there's a claim of accident or mistake, that's fine. But if there's no claim of accident or mistake, you know, frankly, you can't, as you used the beautiful the shoehorn analogy, you can't shoehorn it in. Now, Tane, yeah, if their if their defense is self defense, <laughs> accident or mistake is not really at issue there. They're saying I did it on purpose. I did it because. I was about to be killed, hurt, injured, et cetera. So. 
Makes so, sense. Tane, why don't you tell the folks, I tell you what, Judge McBurney, why don't you tell the folks sort of the three-part test under our new Georgia law that ba- basically says if you want to get something in under 404B, the, the state usually must show these three things. And let's talk about those. Sure. Um, in shorthand, it's proper purpose, 403, and preponderance. But let me expand that a little bit. The first thing that the movement, the proponent, has to show is that this evidence of some other bad act is relevant to something in the case other than the defendant's character. It doesn't show propensity. And to be clear, it may show propensity, but that's not what you argue. You argue as the proponent that it shows intent, it's proof of motive, this or that. That's number one. Number two, 403. The probative value of this other act's evidence must not be substantially outweighed by its undue prejudice. And undue often gets read out of the test, especially by the defense attorney. (laughs) Of course it's prejudicial. It's evidence that this guy did something bad before. It doesn't even need to be criminal. It could be that he lied a lot in in a previous relationship. No one wants to hear that. That's, That's not good. It's not criminal. But the prejudice has to be undue. That's test number two. And number three... Um, is that the, the, the proponent, usually the state, could show to the jury by a preponderance that the defendant actually engaged in that other bad act. And the word that often gets garbled or written out is preponderance. It's not reasonable doubt. It's just more likely than not that the defendant did this other thing. And, and prosecutors love to try it out like, hey, here's the guilty plea. So there's your proof. Kind of, sort of, and we can talk about that later. It's proof that there was a conviction but it depends what you're using that conviction for, if, if that's enough. But those are the three tests. So, Tane, today we have a we have an outline for today's episode, and it's it's probably not something up to Judge McBurney's standards, but it's something we're all going to kind of operate off of. But it has a lot of case sites to it. Now, I don't really plan on reading all these case sites. And, you know, and there's a reason for that, right? There is a there is a reading reason. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. That is one of our rules to live by. <laughs> so so the, there's a case called Kirby that a lot of people point to from 2018 for a lot of different things in 404B land. But we're not going to read all those. Tell everybody where they can go to find this outline, Tang. This outline can be conveniently located at goodjudgepod.com. So, Judge McBurney, we got a pretrial notice requirement. It doesn't say 10 days. It doesn't say tw- two weeks or 30 days. It's just pretrial notice if 404B evidence is going to be offered. And I know the judge has some authority to deviate from that in the proper circumstance. Back in the day, in the similar transaction days, we had a uniform rule that required at least 10 days, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have a lot of people disputing or forgetting to give their pretrial notice? Or, well, he knew I was going to introduce it. I don't know why he's complaining now. Do you have a lot of issues with that? I I don't personally, because I have a standing order that um, sets a deadline by which 404B notices need to be served. Not so much because of that piece, although you are required to give reasonable notice. A judge could find that if it's a real, real simple extrinsic act and everyone knew it was coming, that notice at the time of trial wouldn't be prejudicial. But I, I, I require it um, for a second reason, which is um, the need to have a hearing before the trial. Um, best practice is to air all this out well before your trial. Um, you may get a plea if the defendant knows this other thing is coming in. 
why go to trial? Um, the, the jury is not going to like hearing that there was a previous armed robbery, even if the armed robbery is coming in to show motive and not for a prosecutor to say he robbed someone before, he must have robbed them again. So it gives everyone a, a level of clarity as to what exactly is going to happen in the trial. And you avoid a risk of a mistrial because you'll get to suss out what the issues might be um, and uh, know that you know, we might need to have a witness come in to provide that proffer. Um, I, one of the things that we ought to talk about is what is the content of that hearing. But That's exactly I where I was going to go. Do you, sure. do you let the, the lawyer give a proffer? I do. Um, most of my hearings are not evidentiary. I let the prosecutor proffer, um, but the defense attorney is free to flag. Um, this is what I mentioned about um, sometimes just the, the certified conviction is not enough. Um, you could have a self-defense case. The defendant is saying self-defense. The prosecution says, well, we've got another situation where um, it's real clear he lost his temper and he was convicted of ag assault using a baseball bat that he got out of his car and it's starting to match pretty close to, wow, when this guy gets angry, he's got this thing he does and this is his plan or this is his motive. Um, well, the defense attorney said, that's what the conviction is for. It's an ag assault involving a baseball bat. But I've read the transcript of the plea colloquy and it doesn't sound like that's what happened. And so I've told the prosecutor, based on what you're proffering, it seems like it ought to come in but you need to have that witness appear before we start the trial. And he's going to testify, the victim from the other case, outside the presence of the jury. And if his version of events doesn't line up with what you're saying, you can't use it. Um, I don't do that usually at the hearing unless the lawyers in advance say we're going to need some evidence. But I will flag that that's something we need to do outside the presence of the jury. And if we don't do it before opening, prosecutor, you cannot mention in your opening this other ag assault because you're running the risk of a mistrial. Thing, and usually that you, sorts out. Do you do it by proper thing? Well, it's interesting you ask that because I always have. And then most recently I had an objection from defense counsel uh, who read the specific language of both the statute and a case. And I don't have the case in front of me right now saying, but if I object, you cannot do this by proffer. And I haven't ruled on that yet, but it's a very interesting question of law uh, that, the, that the lawyer has raised in that case. And I do it very similarly to Judge McBurney. I've had several occasions lately where the victim may not, the, the victim of the prior incident may not testify. I mean, they're being very reluctant. And I'm like, no, we're going to have to see if their bright, shiny selves show up at trial before you can go into this on anything on Vordai or anything during jury selection, anything in opening. And before you can get into that at all, we're going to have to have a live witness come and make sure that they are going to, to testify that way. Now, Tane, you remember the days of similar transactions? Yes, I do. Well, and Judge McBurney, let us ask you as the expert, how important is similarity now under the new 404B? Um, other than if the the proper purpose the proponent is pursuing, that's a lot of P's, is identity, <laughs> um, it really doesn't matter at all. Just give you a classic example. The motive for a shooting could be a drug deal that went bad six months earlier. The crime is aggravated assault. The guy survived. So the crime is aggravated assault. The state wants to get in the fact that 
um, the uh, defendant um, was flexed in a drug deal six months ago. And the victim in the ag assault is the guy who flexed him, who, who sold him fake drugs. Um, that has nothing to do in terms of similarity. There were no guns. It was fake drugs and money. It was a drug transaction. The case in chief is a shooting. Well, that's going to come in because it would show the motive for the shooter. This is why he did it. Um, he may be saying with self-defense or some other dude did it, but uh, that would come in as another bad act um, that is connected to the situation. Um, no similarity at all. Sometimes it helps, but it is it's why we don't call it similar transactions. Um, they, they don't need to be similar. The, the evidence needs to satisfy the three tests. And you didn't hear anything in, in the three tests about similarity or identity. Yeah, I was going to say, we still have people throwing those terms around, similar transactions, race gesti, all of those things that we used to hear. And I had to explain to somebody not too long ago, they called it the new evidence code. And I said, this evidence code is walking and talking and in about the third grade by now. So it plays video games now. Yeah, it's not it's not that it's not that new. It's not new at all. It's a great age Rorschach test, though. You can sort of, if you don't right. want to be rude and ask someone how old they are, you just sort of toss out the phrase similar transaction. If they nod and act like they, they also know what a fax machine is and probably a cassette tape. Flip phone. Yeah. <laughs> My first car had an AM8 track. Absolutely. <laughs> it was awesome. I installed an eight track in one of my cars. That's how old I am. And wooden wheels. <laughs> um, so 403, the similarity really sort of becomes an issue much more so when you're doing the second part of the analysis, the 403. And as you've indicated, it really is only a thing when you're going to identity. Everybody stand stand tight for for sort of an explanation of identity because it is really misunderstood by a lot of our litigants and judges. And I think that when you hear what identity really is, as opposed to what it is alleged to be, you will realize, oh, wait a minute, it has basically got to be not identical, but pretty close. Now, everybody understands that exclusion of relevant evidence under 403 is a remedy that is, quote unquote, extraordinary and should be used only sparingly. However, it should be used. That doesn't mean that it should never be used. It should be used. And particularly when you are doing, when you are uh, entertaining a 404B motion, you had better make sure that your analysis acknowledges the need of a 403 analysis. That that's part two of the three-part analysis that was described earlier, because it is absolutely important. Now, Judgment Bernie, things like similarity, we, we've talked about that, but there's a couple of other things that in more recent cases have again and again kept popping up. One of them is need, prosecutorial need for the evidence, and the other is temporal remoteness. Now, I think the need aspect is not completely different than what you referenced earlier when you talked about the guy was in Texas so intent's not really an issue. Then there's really no need there. But the, but the appellate courts in Georgia seem to have talked about similarity, need, and temporal remoteness being really important in the 403 or the second part of the test. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. Um, so 403, in, in contrast to 404, which is described as a rule of inclusion, and that's often lost as, as folks are arguing about it, 404 really is, is a directive to courts to allow things in unless, and one of the unlesses is 403. It says, all right, it, it may be relevant, but if, if the probative value is substantially outweighed by that undue prejudice, then up goes the stop sign and it doesn't come in. And when you're working through that 403 test, um, looking at similarity can help. Um, I think more so the courts emphasize the need by the prosecutor, which goes to probative value, um, not that it's relevant. It's almost always relevant. The question is, how probative is it? And the more the prosecutor needs it, the more probative it is. And, and if you're thinking about the scales and the uh, substantially outweighed, the more probative it is, the greater the need, the harder it's going to be for that prejudice to substantially outweigh the probative value. And the temporal remoteness one is it's, it's smart to remind folks, it's common sense. If the defendant did this thing 30 years ago, the notion that it informs his motive or his intent or his plan now, um, it's much weaker. Um, it, it, it is more of a stretch to say, because X happened back then, that helps us understand what was going on right here. If you're thinking about the intent, um, what did he mean by this? What was, what was his purpose? When, when he pulled out his gun, he's saying self-defense and, and the state is saying, no, 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 it was a crime of aggression. What happened 30 years ago doesn't really educate a jury too much on how this person might be behaving now. This is just a quick aside because we're talking about Rule 404, but I want to remind folks that the 403 analysis is one that needs to be done in a lot of these evidentiary questions, not just 404B. I mean, there are many, many, many questions that we're, we say, okay, phase one is done. We've analyzed it under this statute of the evidence code. Now we need to do our 403 analysis, and this is no exception, except that here it's essentially contained within the rule that you're supposed to do that analysis. Yeah, it's a great point. It's funny that they basically baked in. It's almost redundant because yeah. you have 403 is an objection that an opponent to a piece of evidence could make to any piece of evidence ever. And so to say, oh, by the way, with 404B, you need to apply 403. Of course you do, in the same way that it could be hearsay. You know, if the way they were right. going to get in the 404B was to have someone come in and say, well, so-and-so told me that this guy did it. You're not exempt from hearsay. You're not exempt from 403. But it's healthy to put it front and center in front of the decision maker. So earlier you mentioned naming your children extrinsic and intrinsic. And, <laughs> and I want to make sure that this is something I think that is lost on us and, and lawyers and judges and whoever the us is. Intrinsic versus extrinsic acts. Now, 404B really addresses issues that are extrinsic to the to the crime charge. Let me repeat that. 404B goes to extrinsic evidence. If the other act that we're talking about is truly intrinsic or what they've said in some of the cases is telling the story of the crime, the one that's indicted and the one that we're here for, then it really doesn't fall within 404B. It's 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 intrinsic. It you can't understand why this happened or what happened without telling the story of this other act. So 
Tane, you and I have had some conversations about extrinsic and intrinsic evidence. I'm, I'm imagining Judge McBurney being the great communicator that he is probably has a cool way of explaining that difference. Do you have one? Me or Judge McBurney? Well, look, you're a great communicator too, Tane. I know, right? So, 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 um, so feel I'll, free. I'll, you... You you describe one of the ways that I describe it, which is if you were going to tell your mom what this case is about, you're sharing with her the intrinsic information. Let me just tell you the story of this case, the actions. There was a bank. The guy came in with a gun. He took the money and he left. Um, you're describing all the intrinsic evidence. Anything that would add color to it. Oh, and by the way, the guy who did it, he had a meth habit. And he needed the money. He had a motive um, because he had some pretty serious debts um, to pay off for his meth addiction. That's really not a story of what happened in the bank because that's all he's charged with. So anything that you're adding that's providing some, we'll call it background, would be extrinsic. It doesn't have to do with proving the case. If the jury believed everything you said about what happened on that day, um, that's your intrinsic stuff, and you really wouldn't need the extrinsic piece. Extrinsic is when you're bringing in things from the outside, sir. An example from a case that I had in the past uh, is there were four guys in a car. They pulled up to a convenience store, got out. One of them had a gun. He pointed it at another guy at the convenience store. They asked for his car keys and his wallet and his cell phone. They took his car. One of the guys drove away in it. The other three jumped back in the car and drive. They drive across the bridge and over into Fulton County. And 15 minutes later, they pulled into a convenience store, got out, held a gun on a guy, took his car keys, wallet, and cell phone. And, um, and in that case, they shot him. <laughs> and and in my case, I said, look, this is kind of an unbroken series of events where they're all doing the same thing. However, the difference in that case was I said, but you can't say they shot him because <laughs> that's going to be that's going to be the 403 right. part, which is prejud more prejudicial than it is probative. You can get in all this other intrinsic evidence that they went across to Fulton County and robbed somebody in the same way. So that's the example that sticks in my head. Right, the crime spree, and, and the cases refer to that, that if it, if it you know, someone um, robs three convenience stores, two of which are in your county, and one is mine, you don't have to excise that one, and maybe it's the one in the middle. So right. what did they do between 11 and one? They robbed another Waffle House, but they weren't in Cobb County. The jury gets to hear about that, and it's not subject to a 404B analysis. It's certainly 403, but not 404B, because it's not extrinsic to the set of conduct for which they're being charged. Now, guys, I love my in-laws. I do. But my in-laws tell stories in a way that constantly I look at them and I'm like, is there a dog in this story? Are we going to get to the point here? So when you're talking about telling the story, what you said is very important, Judge McBurney and, and Tane as well. It, it matters that you need to tell what color the car was to tell the story or that the guy had the meth habit to tell the story. You don't, as you pointed out, when the guy walks in the bank with the gun, steals the money, runs away, gets in the car, drives away. That's what happened in the bank. 
the other examples that you gave, because people get lost on this now, in Tane's example, they robbed a place, they robbed a convenience store in one county, drove away, and then robbed another convenience store. They don't have, you're telling more than the story of what happened in the convenience store, right? You're telling what happened at the other convenience store too, but that's a crime spree. It's really when you have something that is sort of a left turn to to telling the logical story of the crime spree, why they may have wanted to do what they did really has nothing to do with what did they do. And so when you start getting into why motive, anything that's sort of backward looking, you're starting to immediately go, hmm. I'm not sure this is intrinsic anymore. It may be interesting. It may inform why this happened. It is not necessarily intrinsic. Right? Y'all agree? I agree. Yes, sir. Okay. Y'all both got real quiet on me. It scared me. I was out there on the ledge bouncing by myself. <laughs> you seemed like you were on a roll. We, didn't we were mesmerized. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to yeah. stop that. Y'all haven't met my in-laws, have you? No, sir. They tell some interesting stories. <laughs> Apparently um, no dogs in the stories, though. No, no dogs no in the story, no. and you can get it in as intrinsic. So if evidence is intrinsic, what do we care? Let's let's talk about that. So if it's intrinsic or extrinsic, what do we care? Do we have to give pretrial notice, Tane, if it's intrinsic? No, we do not. My lawyers know they probably should if it's on the borderline because I'm <laughs> going to have a heart attack and throw things if it's possibly going to cost me a mistrial. But by and large, it's not required. Um, it's not a bad idea to have your stamp of intrinsic on that evidence before they start talking about it at trial, though. Uh, and and I'm, I'm with you. My prosecutors know that I'd rather them run it past me just so we're all on the same page that it is, in fact, intrinsic evidence. Yeah, that, that's a little bit of a gamble because um, it could even be a 403 reason why it's not coming in. They could be right that it's intrinsic, but it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle if you just ask the detective, well, what about the other armed robbery in DeKalb County? <laughs> you know what? Now we're, we're not going to let that in. So. so there's one other area of the 404B statute we probably really ought to talk about here, and that is prior difficulties between the parties. That's one of those things that that seems to come up more often and not frequently in domestic relations cases and other kind of cases, you know, shootings that were in retribution for other shootings. What are you what do you talk a little bit, if you would, Judge McBurney, about prior difficulties? So you've described them. It's some conflict in the past. And this one is backward looking. Extrinsic evidence could have happened after the event, but this would be prior to the event at issue, there were, were difficulties. Um, again, as with intrinsic evidence, no need to provide notice. Uh, it's not subject to the three-pronged 404B test. Obviously, 403 still applies, um, but it's a little counterintuitive because it's a prior bad act. And the way the state uses it typically is he beat his wife before, so you can understand what was going on here. Um, but that's how prior difficulties are often used, um, sometimes necessary because you have a victim who says nothing happened and nothing like this has ever happened before. Um, but the, the point is prior difficulties, which would be other bad acts, extrinsic, they are not directly connected to a crime spree or this, it, it could be that we fought a year ago in the same way. Um, those could come in without the 404B analysis or notice. 
do they, they have to be relevant though. I mean, it, you can't just gratuitously say this case is a sex crime and he used to beat her. Correct. They would be relevant in that it's a use of force between the same two people also. I mean, it's not that he beat up his old girlfriend. That might be 404B, um, but it would be the same two people, same defendant and victim, and they need to be roughly congruent. They don't need to be identical because often, as you mentioned, where you see it is now it got to the point where he shot her. And previously he didn't shoot her. He shoved her. He stabbed her. He beat her. But it's prior difficulties between those parties uh, as a result of their relationship. And when you say parties, just to be clear, in the criminal context, that also means the defendant and the victim in the case that we are trying. Correct. That's exactly what I mean. It almost ought to say prior difficulties between these parties. Yeah, true. Hold on. This is your favorite producer slash editor, Stephen, here. Man, these guys are long-winded. But this interview is so good, we're going to break it up into two equally enthralling sessions. Court has adjourned. I've always wanted to say that. Okay, I'm going to run the outro now. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, who is the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law, and specifically to Mr. Jim Henneberger. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, for editing out as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead NJO, that's New Judge Orientation, for new Superior Court Judges and for their support of this project. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of CSCJ, ICJE, the UGA College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. These are barely the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tang Kell, so we definitely aren't speaking for anyone else. You can contact us on our website, goodjudgepod.com. Or send us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this episode. Anything else you feel like we need to say? Only in the words of Taylor Swift, haters gonna hate. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.